0: This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy. It's woolly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, bunnieslippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from. All kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at bunnyslippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, bunnieslippers.com. Highland cow slipper. It's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland cow slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio which does have a chilly floor, even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. (laughs) Anyway, that's one reason D.B. Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, Let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know... <laughs> somewhere in your house maybe a robot is playing music for you enjoy so here we go uh this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on pgtcm.com you can check the show notes to find out where to go or you can just simply i don't know find us on facebook we've got a link somewhere to somewhere You buy shirts, it keeps the show going, makes me happy, makes you happy, everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything, about the show, if you want to talk about anything... We've got a contact form at p-g-t-t-c-m dot com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All
1: right. Thank you. Here we go. The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W.E.B. DuBose, Chapter 33, The Buying of the Swamp. It's a shame asserted John Taylor, with something like real feeling. He was spending Sunday with his father-in-law, and both, over their after-dinner cigars, were gazing thoughtfully at the swamp. What's a shame? asked Colonel Cresswell. To see all that timber and prime cotton land going to waste. Don't you remember those fine bales of cotton that came out of there several seasons ago? The Colonel smoked placidly, "'You can't get it cleared,' he said. "'But couldn't you hire some good workers?' "'Niggers won't work. "'Now, if we had Italians, we might do it.' "'Yes, and in a few years, they'd own the country.' "'That's right. "'So, there we are. "'There's only one way to get that swamp cleared.' "'How?' "'Sell it to some fool darky.' "'Sell it? "'It's too valuable to sell.' "'That's just it. "'You don't understand.' The only way to get decent work out of some niggers is to let them believe they're buying land. In nine cases out of ten, he works hard a while, and then throws up the job. We get back our land, and he makes good wages for his work. But in the tenth case, suppose he should stick to it. Oh, easily. We could get rid of him when we want to. White people rule here. John Taylor frowned and looked a little puzzled. He was no moralist, but he had his code, and he did not understand Colonel Cresswell. As a matter of fact, Colonel Cresswell was an honest man. In most matters of commerce between men, he was punctilious to a degree almost annoying to Taylor. But there was one part of the world which his code of honor did not cover, and he saw no incongruity in the omission." The uninitiated cannot easily picture to himself the mental attitude of a former slave owner toward property in the hands of a negro. Such property belonged of right to the master. If the master needed it, and since ridiculous laws safeguarded the property, it was perfectly permissible to circumvent such laws. No negro starved on the Cresswell Place, neither did any accumulate property. Colonel Cresswell saw to both matters. As the Colonel and John Taylor were thus conferring, Zora appeared, coming up the walk. "'Who's that?' asked the Colonel, shading his eyes. "'It's Zora, the girl who went north with Mrs. Vanderpool,' Taylor enlightened him. "'Back is she? Too trifling to stick to a job, and full of northern nonsense,' growled the Colonel. even got a northern walk,' I thought for a moment she was a lady. Neither of the gentlemen ever dreamed how long, how hard, how heart-wringing was that walk from the gate up the winding way beneath their careless gaze. It was not the coming of the thoughtless, careless girl of five years ago who had marched a dozen times unthinking before the faces of white men. It was the approach of a woman who knew how the world treated women, whom it respected, who knew that no such treatment would be thought of in her case, neither the bow, the lifted hat, nor even the conventional title of decency. Yet she must go on naturally and easily, boldly but circumspectly, and play a daring game with two powerful men. ''Can I speak with you a moment, Colonel?'' she asked. The Colonel did not stir or remove his cigar. He even injected a little gruffness into his tone. "'Well, what is it?' "'Of course she was not asked to sit, "'but she stood with her hands clasped loosely before her, "'and her eyes half-veiled. "'Colonel, I've got a thousand dollars.' "'She did not mention the other nine. "'The Colonel sat up. "'Where did you get it?' he asked. "'Mrs. Vanderpool gave it to me, "'to use in helping the colored people. "'What are you going to do with it?' "'Well, that's just what I came to see you about. "'You see, I might give it to the school. "'But I've been thinking that I'd like to buy some land "'for some of the tenants.' "'I've got no land to sell,' said the Colonel. "'I was thinking you might sell a bit of the swamp.' "'Cresswell and Taylor glanced at each other, "'and the Colonel relit his cigar. "'How much of it?' he asked finally. "'I don't know.' I thought perhaps two hundred acres. Two hundred acres? Do you expect to buy that land for five dollars an acre? Oh no, sir, I thought it might cost as much as twenty-five dollars. But you've only got a thousand dollars. Yes, sir, I thought I might pay that down and pay the rest from the crops. Who's going to work on the place? Zora named a number of the steadiest tenants to whom she had spoken. "'They owe me a lot of money,' said the colonel. "'We'd try to pay that, too.' Colonel Cresswell considered. There was absolutely no risk. The cost of the land, the back debts of the tenants, no possible crops could pay for them. Then there was the chance of getting the swamp cleared for almost nothing. "'How's the school getting on?' he asked suddenly. "'Very poorly,' answered Zora sadly. "'You know it's mortgaged.' and Miss Smith has had to use the mortgage money for yearly expenses. The colonel smiled grimly. It will cost you $50 an acre, he said finally. Zora looked disappointed, and figured out the matter slowly. That would be 1000 down, and 9000 to pay. With interest, said Cresswell. Zora shook her head doubtfully. What would the interest be, she asked. Ten percent. She stood silent a moment, and Colonel Cresswell spoke up. "'It's the best land about here, and about the only land you can buy. I wouldn't sell it to anybody else.' Still she hesitated. "'The trouble is, you see, Colonel Cresswell, the price is high and the interest heavy. And after all, I may not be able to get as many tenants as I'd need. I think, though, I'd try it if... If I could be sure you'd treat me fairly and that I'd get the land if I paid for it. Colonel Cresswell reddened a little, and John Taylor looked away. Well, if you don't want to undertake it, all right. Zora looked thoughtfully across the field. Mr. Maxwell has a bit of land, she began, meditatively. Worked out and not worth five dollars an acre, snapped the colonel, but he did not propose to hand Maxwell a thousand dollars. Now see here. I'll treat you as well as anybody, and you know it.' "'I believe so, sir,' acknowledged Zora, in a tone that brought a sudden keen glance from Taylor. But her face was a mask. "'I reckon I'll make the bargain.' "'All right. Bring the money, and we'll fix the thing up.' "'The money is here,' said Zora, taking an envelope out of her bosom. "'Well, leave it here, and I'll see to it.' "'But you see, sir,' Miss Smith is so methodical, she expects some papers or receipts. Well, it's too late tonight. Possibly you could sign a sort of receipt and later? Cresswell laughed. Well, write one. He indulgently assented. And Zora wrote. When Zora left Colonel Cresswell's about noon that Sunday, she knew her work had just begun, and she walked swiftly along the country roads, calling here and there. Would Uncle Isaac help her build a log home? Would the boys help her sometime to clear some swampland? Would Rob become a tenant when she asked? For this was the idle time of the year. Crops were laid by, and planting had not yet begun. This, too, was the time of big church meetings. She knew that in her part of the country, on that day, the Black population, man, woman, and child, were gathered in great groups. All day they had been gathering, streaming in snake-like lines along the country roads, in well-brushed, brilliant attire, half fantastic, half crude. Down where the Toonsville, Montgomery Highway dipped to the stream that fed the Cresswell Swamp, squatted a square barn that slept through day and weeks in dull indifference. But on the first Sunday it woke to sudden mighty life. The voices of men and children mingled with the snorting of animals and the cracking of whips. Then came the long drone and sing song of the preacher, with its sharp, wilder climaxes, and the answering amens and screams of the worshipers. This was the shrine of the Baptists, shrine and oracle, center and source of inspiration, and hither. Zora hurried. The preacher was Jones, a big man, fat, black, and greasy, with little eyes, unctuous voice, and three manners. His white folk's manner, soft, humble, wielding. His black folk's manner, voluble, important, condescending. And above all, his pulpit manner, loud, wild, and strong. He was about to don this latter cloak, when Zora approached with a request briefly to address the congregation. Remembering some former snubs, his manner was lordly. I doesn't see, he returned reflectively, wiping his brows, as how I can rightly spare you any time. The brethren is a-getting mighty on to hear me. He pulled down his cuffs, regarding her doubtfully. I might speak after you're through, she suggested. But he objected, that there was the regular collection and two or three other collections, a baptism, a meeting of the trustees. There was no time, in short. But he eyed her again. "'Does you want a collection?' he questioned suspiciously, for he could imagine few other reasons for talking. Then, too, he did not want to be too inflexible, for all of his people knew Zora and liked her. Oh no, I want no collection at all, I only want a little voluntary work on their part." He looked relieved, frowned through the door at the audience, and looked at his bright gold watch. The whole crowd was not there yet, perhaps? You can say just a word before the sermonette, he finally yielded, but not long, not long. They's just a dyin' to hear me. So Zora spoke simply but clearly, of neglect and suffering, of the sins of others that bowed young shoulders, of the great hope of the children's future. Then she told something of what she had seen and read, of the world's newer ways of helping men and women. She talked of cooperation and refugees and other efforts. She praised their way of adopting children into their own homes, and then, finally, She told them of the land she was buying for new tenants and the helping hands she needed. The preacher fidgeted and coughed, but dared not actually interrupt, for the people were listening breathless to a kind of straightforward talk which they seldom heard, and for which they were hungering. And Zora forgot time and occasion. The moments flew. The crowd increased until the wonderful spell of those dark and upturned faces pulsed in her blood. She felt the wild yearning to help them, beating in her ears and blinding her eyes. "'Oh, my people,' she almost sobbed, "'my own people. I am not asking you to help others. I am pleading with you to help yourselves. Rescue your own flesh and blood. Free yourselves, free yourselves.' And from the swaying, sobbing hundreds burst a great, Amen. THE MINISTER'S DUSKY FACE GREW MORE AND MORE SOMBER, AND THE ANGRY SWEAT STARTED ON HIS BROW. HE FELT HIMSELF HOAXED AND CHEATED, AND HE MEANT TO HAVE HIS REVENGE. TWO HUNDRED MEN AND WOMEN ROSE AND PLEDGED THEMSELVES TO HELP ZORA. AND WHEN SHE TURNED WITH OVERFLOWING HEART TO THANK THE PREACHER, HE HAD LEFT THE PLATFORM, AND SHE FOUND HIM IN THE YARD, WHISPERING DARKLY WITH TWO DEACONS. She realized her mistake and promised to retrieve it during the week, but the week was full of planning and journeying and talking. Saturday dawned cool and clear. She had dinner prepared for cooking in the yard. Sweet potatoes, hoe cake and buttermilk, and a hog to be barbecued. Everything was ready by eight o'clock in the morning. Emma and two other girl helpers were on the tiptoe of expectancy. Nine o'clock came, and no one with it. Ten o'clock came, and eleven. High noon found Zora peering down the highway under her shading hand. But no soul in sight. She tried to think it out. What could have happened? Her people were slow, tardy, but they would not thus forget her and disappoint her without some great cause. She sent the girls home at dusk, and then seated herself miserably under the great oak, Then, at last, one half-grown boy hurried by. I wanted to come, Miss Zora, but I was afeard. Preacher Jones has been talking everywhere against you. He says that your mother was a voodoo woman, and that you don't believe in God, and the deacons voted that the members mustn't help you. And do the people believe that? she asked in consternation. They just don't know what to say. They don't exactly believe it, But they has to, lo, that you didn't say much about religion when you talked. You ain't been near big meetin'. And and you ain't saved. He hurried on. Zora leaned her head back wearily, watching the laced black branches where the starlight flickered through, as coldly still and immovable as she had watched them from those gnarled roots all her life. And she murmured bitterly, the world-old question of despair. What's the use? It seemed to her that every breeze and branch was instinct with sympathy and murmuring. What's the use? She wondered vaguely why, and as she wondered, she knew. For yonder, where the black earth of the swamp heaved in a formless mound, she felt the black arms of Elspeth rising from the sod, gigantic, mighty, They stole towards her with stealthy hands and claw-like talons. They clutched at her skirt. She froze and could not move. Down, down she slipped toward the black slime of the swamp, and the air about was horror. Down, down, to the chilly waters stung her knees, and then with one grip she seized the oak, while the great hand of Elspeth twisted and tore her soul. Faint, afar, nearer and nearer, and ever mightier, rose a song of mystic melody. She heard its human voice, and sought to cry aloud. She strove again and again with that gripping, twisting pain, the awful hand, until the shriek came, and she awoke. She lay panting and sweating across the bent and broken roots of the oak. The hand of Elspeth was gone, but the song was still there. She rose trembling and listened. It was the singing of the big meeting in the church far away. She had forgotten this religious revival in her days of hurried preparation, and the preacher had used her absence and apparent indifference against her and her work. The hand of Elspeth was reaching from the grave to pull her back, but she was no longer dreaming now. Drawing her shawl about her, she hurried down the highway. The meeting had overflowed the church and spread to the edge of the swamp. The tops of young trees had been bent down and interlaced to form a covering, and benches twined to their trunks. Thus, a low and wide cathedral, all green and silver in the starlight, lay packed with a living mass of black folk. Flaming pine torches burned above the devotees, the rhythm of their stamping, the shout of their voices and the wild music of her singing shook the night. Four hundred people fell upon their knees when the huge black preacher, uncoated, red-eyed, frenzied, stretched his long arms to heaven. Sora saw the throng from afar, and hesitated. After all, she knew little of this strange faith of theirs, had little belief in its mummery. She herself had been brought up almost without religion, save some few mystic remnants of a half-forgotten heathen cult. The little she had seen of religious observance had not moved her greatly, save once yonder in Washington. There she found God, after a searching that had seared her soul. But he had simply pointed the way, and the way was human. Humanity was near and real. She loved it but if she talked again of mere men, would these devotees listen? Already the minister had spied her tall form and feared her power. He set his powerful voice and the frenzy of his hearers to crush her. "'Who is this what talks of doing the Lord's work for him? What does the good book say? Take no thoughts about tomorrow.' "'Why is you trying to make this old world better?' "'I spits on the world.' "'Come out from it. Seek Jesus. Heaven is my home. Is it yours? "'Yes,' groaned the multitude. His arm shot out, and he pointed straight at Zora. "'Beware the evil one,' he shouted, and the multitude moaned. "'Beware of them that calls evil good. "'Beware of them that worships devils, the devils that crawl, the devils but forgets God.' "'Help him, Lord,' cried the multitude. Zora stepped into the circle of light. A hush fell on the throng. The preacher paused a moment, then started boldly forward with upraised hands. Then a curious thing happened. A sharp cry arose, far off, down toward the swamp, and the sound of great footsteps coming, coming as from the end of the world. There swelled a rhythmical chanting, wilder and more primitive than song. On, on it came, until it swung in the sight. An old man led the band, tall, massive, with tufted gray hair and wrinkled leathery skin, and his eyes were the eyes of death. He reached the circle of light, and Zora started, once before she had seen that old man. The singing stopped, but he came straight on till he reached Zora's side, and then he whirled and spoke. The words leaped and flew from his lips, as he lashed the throng with bitter fury. He said what Zora wanted to say with two great differences. First, he spoke their religious language and spoke it with absolute confidence and authority. And secondly, he seemed to know each one there personally and intimately, so that he spoke to no inchoate throng. He spoke to them individually, and they listened awestruck and fearsome. "'God has done sent me,' he declared in passionate tones, "'to preach his acceptable time. "'Faith without works is dead. "'Who is you that dares to set and wait for the Lord to do your work?' "'Then, in a sudden fury, "'Ye generation of vipers, who can save you?' "'He bent forward and pointed his long finger. "'Yes,' he cried. "'Pray, Sam Collins, you black devil. "'Pray for the corn you stole Thursday.' "'The black figure moved.' "'Moan, Sister Maxwell, for the backbiting you did today. "'Yell, Jack Tolliver, you sneaking scamp. "'Twill the Lord tell Uncle Bill who ruined his daughter. "'Weep, May Hayes, for that baby.' "'But the woman's shriek drowned his words, "'and he whirled, full on the preacher, "'stamping his feet and waving his hands. "'His anger choked him. "'The fat preacher cowered, gray and trembling. "'The gaunt fanatic towered over him.' You, you, ornery hound of hell, God never knowed you, and the devil owns your soul. There leaped from his lips a denunciation so livid, specific, and impassioned, that the preacher squatted and bowed, then finally fell upon his face and moaned. The gaunt speaker turned again to the people. He talked of little children. He pictured their sin and neglect. God has done sent me, To offer you all salvation, he cried, while the people wept and wailed, not in praying, but in works. Follow me. The hour was halfway between midnight and dawn, but nevertheless the people leaped frenziedly to their feet. Follow me, he shouted. And singing and chanting, the throng poured out upon the black highway, waving their torches. Zora knew his intention. With a half a dozen of younger onlookers, She unhitched teams, and rode across the land, calling at the cabins. Before sunrise, tools were in the swamp, axes and saws and hammers. The noise of prayer and singing filled the Sabbath dawn. The news of the great revival spread, and men and women came pouring in. Then, of a sudden, the uproar stopped, and the ringing of axes and the grating of saws and tugging of mules was heard. The forest trembled as by some mighty magic, swaying and falling with crash on crash. Huge bonfires blazed and crackled, until at last a wide black scar appeared in the thick south side of the swamp, which widened and widened to full twenty acres. The sun rose higher and higher till it blazed at high noon. The workers dropped their tools. The aroma of coffee and roasting meat rose in the dim, cool shade. With ravenous appetites, the dark, half-famished throng fell upon the food, and then, in utter weariness, stretched themselves and slept, lying along the earth like huge, bronze-earth spirits, sitting against trees, curled in dense bushes. And Zora sat above them on a high, rich-scented pile of logs. Her senses slept, save her sleepless eyes. Amid a silence, she saw in the little grove that still stood the cabin of Elspeth Tremble sigh and disappear, and with it flew some spirit of evil. Then she looked down to the new edge of the swamp by the old lagoon, and saw Bless Alwyn standing there. It seemed very natural, and closing her eyes, she fell asleep. End of chapter 33 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. DuBose Chapter 34 The Return of Alwyn Bless Alwyn stared at Mrs. Harry Cresswell in surprise. He had not seen her since that moment at the ball, and he was startled at the change. Her abundant hair was gone. Her face was pale and drawn, and there were little wrinkles below her sunken eyes. In those eyes lurked the tired look of the bewildered and the disappointed. It was in the lofty waiting room of the Washington station where Alwyn had come to meet a friend. Mrs. Cresswell turned and recognized him with genuine pleasure. He seemed, somehow, a part of the few things in the world little and unimportant, perhaps, that counted and stood firm, and she shook his hand cordially, not minding the staring of the people about. He took her bag, and carried it towards the gate, which made the observers breathe easier, seeing him in servile duty. Some way, she knew not just how, she found herself telling him of the crisis in her life, before she realized. Not everything, of course but a great deal. It was much as though she were talking to someone from another world, an outsider, but one she had known long, one who understood. Both from what she recounted and what she could not tell, he gathered the substance of the story, and it bewildered him. He had not thought that white people had such troubles. Yet, he reflected, why not? They too were human. I suppose you hear from the school, he ventured after a pause. Why, yes, not directly, but Zora used to speak of it. Bless looked up quickly. Zora? Yes. Didn't you see her while she was here? She has gone back now. Then the gate opened, the crowd surged through, sweeping them apart, and next moment he was alone. Alwyn turned slowly away. He forgot the friend he was to meet. He forgot everything but the field of the silver fleece. It rose shadowy there in the pale concourse, swaying in ghostly breezes. The purple of its flowers mingled with the silver radiance of tendrils that trembled across the hurrying throng, like threads of mist along low hills. In its mist rose a dark, slim, and quivering form. She had been here, here in Washington. Why had he not known? What was she doing? She has gone back now, back to the sun and the swamp, back to the burden. Why should he not go back, too? He walked on, thinking he had failed. His apparent success had been too sudden, too overwhelming. And when he faced the crisis, his hand had trembled. He had chosen the right, but the right was ineffective, impotent almost ludicrous. It left him shorn, powerless, and in moral revolt. The world had suddenly left him, as the vision of Carrie Wynne had left him, alone, a mere clerk, an insignificant cog, in the great grinding wheel of humdrum drudgery. His chance to do, and thereby to be, had not come. He thought of Zora again. Why not go back to the south, where she had gone? He shuddered, as one who sees before him a cold, black pool, whither his path leads. To face the proscription, the insult, the lawless hate of the South again, never. And yet he went home and sat down and wrote a long letter to Miss Smith. The reply that came after some delay was almost curt. It answered few of his questions, argued with none of his doubts and made no mention of Zora. Yes, there was need of a manager for the new farm and settlement. She was not sure whether Alwyn could do the work or not. The salary was meager, and the work hard. If he wished it, he must decide immediately. Two weeks later found Alwyn on the train, facing southward, in the Jim Crow car. How he had decided to go back south, he did not know. In fact, he had not decided. He had sat helpless and inactive in the grip of great and shadowed hands. And the thing was as yet incomprehensible. And so it was that the vision Zora saw in the swamp had been real enough, and Alwyn felt strangely disappointed that she had given no sign of greeting on recognition. In other ways, too, Zora, when he met her, was to him a new creature, She came to him frankly and greeted him, her gladness shining in her eyes, yet looking nothing more than gladness and saying nothing more. Just what he had expected was hard to say, but he had left her on her knees in the dirt with outstretched hands, and somehow he had expected to return to some corresponding mental attitude. The physical change of these three years was marvelous. The girl was a woman well-rounded and poised, tall, straight, and quick. And, with this, went mental change, a self-mastery, a veiling of the self, even in intimate talk, a subtle air as of one looking from great and unreachable heights down on the dawn of the world. Perhaps no one who had not known the child and the girl as he had would have noted all this, but he saw and realized the transformation with a pang. Something had gone, the innocence and wonder of the child, and in their place had grown up something to him incomprehensible and occult. Miss Smith was not to be easily questioned on the subject. She took no hints and gave no information. And when once he hazarded some pointed questions, she turned on him abruptly, observing acidly, "'If I were you, I'd think less of Zora and more of her work.' Gradually, in his spiritual perplexity, Alwyn turned to Mary Cresswell. She was staying with the Colonel at Cresswell Oaks. Her coming south was supposed to be solely for reasons of health, and her appearance made this excuse plausible. She was lonely and restless, and naturally drawn toward the school. Her intercourse with Miss Smith was only formal, but her interest in Zora's work grew down in the swamp, at the edge of the cleared space, had risen a log cabin, long, low, spacious, overhung with oak and pine. It was Zora's center for her settlement work. There she lived, and with her, a half-dozen a dozen orphan girls and children, too young for the boarding department of the school. Mrs. Cresswell easily fell into the habit of walking by here each day, coming down the avenue of oaks across the road and into the swamp. She saw little of Zora personally, but she saw her girls, and learned much of her plans. The rooms of the cottage were clean and light, supplied with books and pictures, simple toys, and a phonograph. The yard was one wide green and golden playground, and all day the music of children's glad crooning, and the singing of girls, went echoing and trembling, through the trees, as they played and sewed and washed and worked. From the Cresswells and the Maxwells and others came loads of clothes for washing and mending. The Tolliver girls had simple dresses made, embroidery was ordered from town, and soon there would be the gardens and cotton fields. Mrs. Cresswell would saunter down of mornings. Sometimes she would talk to the big girls and play with the children. Sometimes she would sit hidden in the forest, listening and glimpsing and thinking, thinking, till her head whirled and the world danced red before her eyes. Today she rose wearily, for it was near noon and started home. She saw Alwyn swing along the road to the school dining room, where he had charge of the students at the noonday meal. Alwyn wanted Mrs. Cresswell's judgment and advice, He was growing doubtful of his own estimate of women. Evidently, something about his standards was wrong. Consequently, he made opportunities to talk with Mrs. Cresswell when she was about, hoping she would bring up the subject of Zora of her own accord. But she did not. She was too full of her own cares and troubles, and she was only too glad of willing and sympathetic ears into which to pour her thoughts. Miss Smith soon began to look on these conversations with some uneasiness. Black men and white women cannot talk together casually in the South, and she did not know how far the North had put notions in Alwyn's head. Today both met each other almost eagerly. Mrs. Cresswell had just had a bit of news which only he would fully appreciate. ''Have you heard of the Vanderpools?'' she asked. "'No, except that he was appointed and confirmed at last.' "'Well, they had only arrived in France when he died of apoplexy.' "'I do not know,' added Mrs. Cresswell. "'I may be wrong, and I hope I'm not glad.' Then there leaped into her mind a hypothetical question which had to do with her own curious situation. It was characteristic of her to brood and then restlessly to seek relief in consulting the one person near who knew her story. She started to open the subject again today. But Alwyn, his own mind full, spoke first and rapidly. He too had turned to her as he saw her come from Zora's home. He must know more about the girl. He could no longer endure this silence. Zora, beneath her apparent frankness, was impenetrable, and he felt that she carefully avoided him although she did it so deftly that he felt rather than observed it miss smith still systematically snubbed him when he broached the subject of zora with others he did not speak the matter seemed too delicate and sacred and he always had an awful dread lest sometime somewhere a chance a fatal word would be dropped a breath of evil gossip which would shatter all He had hated to obtrude his troubles on Mrs. Cresswell, who seemed so torn in soul. But today he must speak, although time pressed. Mrs. Cresswell, he began hurriedly, there's a matter, a personal matter, of which I have wanted to speak a long time. I... The dinner bell rang, and he stopped, vexed. Come up to the house this afternoon, she said. Colonel Cresswell will be away. Then she paused abruptly. A strange, startling thought flashed through her brain. Alwyn noticed nothing. He thanked her cordially and hurried toward the dining hall, meeting Colonel Cresswell on horseback, just as he turned into the school gate. Mary Cresswell walked slowly on, flushing and paling by turns. Could it be that this Negro had dared to misunderstand her, had presumed? she reviewed her conduct. Perhaps she had been indiscreet in thus making a confidant of him in her troubles. She had thought of him as a boy, an old student, a sort of confidential servant, but what had he thought? She remembered Miss Smith's warnings of years before, and he had been North since acquired Northern notions of freedom and equality. She bit her lip cruelly. Yet she mused She was herself to blame. She had unwittingly made the intimacy, and he was but a negro, looking on every white woman as a goddess and ready to fawn at the slightest encouragement. There had been no one else here to confide in. She could not tell Miss Smith her troubles, although she knew Miss Smith must suspect. Harry Cresswell, apparently, had written nothing home of their quarrel. All the neighbors behaved as if her excuse of ill-health were sufficient to account for her return, south to escape the rigors of a northern winter. Alwyn and Alwyn alone really knew. Well, it was her blindness, and she must write it quietly and quickly with hard, ruthless plainness. She blushed again at the shame of it. Then she began to excuse. After all, which was worse, a Cresswell or an Alwyn? It was no sin that Alwyn had done. It was simply ignorant presumption, and she must correct him firmly but gently, like a child. What a crazy muddle the world was! She thought of Harry Cresswell and the tale he told her in the swamp. She thought of the flitting ghosts that awful night in Washington. She thought of Miss Wynne, who had jilted Alwyn and given herself a very bad quarter of an hour. What a world it was, and after all, how far was this black boy wrong?" Just then, Colonel Cresswell rode up behind and greeted her. She started almost guiltily, and again a sense of the awkwardness of her position reddened her face and neck. The Colonel dismounted, despite her protest, and walked beside her. They chatted along indifferently, of the crops, her brother's new baby the proposed mill. Mary, his voice abruptly struck a new note. I don't like the way you talk with that Alwyn nigger. She was silent. Of course, he continued, you're Northern-born, and you have been a teacher in this school and feel differently from us in some ways. But mark what I say. A nigger will presume on the slightest pretext, and you must keep them in their place. Then, too, you are a Cresswell now, She smiled bitterly. He noticed it, but went on. "'You are a Cresswell, even if you have caught Harry up to some of his deviltry,' she started, and got miffed about it. "'It'll all come out, right? You're a Cresswell, and you must hold yourself too high to Mr. a nigger, or let him dream of any sort of equality.' He spoke pleasantly, but with a certain sharp insistence that struck a note of fear in Mary's heart. For a moment she thought of writing Alwyn not to call, but no, a note would be unwise. She and Colonel Cresswell lunched rather silently. Well, I must get to town, he finally announced. The mill directors meet today. If Maxwell calls by about that lumber, tell him I'll see him in town. And away he went. He had scarcely reached the highway and ridden a quarter of a mile or so, when he spied, bless Alwyn, hurrying across the field, toward the Cresswell oaks. He frowned and rode on. Then reining in his horse, he stopped in the shadow of the trees and watched Alwyn. It was here that Zora saw him as she came up from her house. She too stopped, and soon saw whom he was watching. She had been planning to see Mr. Cresswell about the cut timber on her land. By legal right, it was hers but she knew he would claim half, treating her like a mere tenant. Seeing him watching Alwyn, she paused in the shadow and waited, fearing trouble. She too had felt that the continued conversations of Alwyn and Mrs. Cresswell were indiscreet, but she hoped that they had attracted no one else's attention. Now she feared the Colonel was suspicious, and her heart sank. Alwyn went straight toward the house, and disappeared in the Oak Avenue. Still Colonel Cresswell waited, but Zora waited no longer. Alwyn must be warned. She must reach Cresswell's mansion before Cresswell did, and without him seeing her. This meant a long detour of the swamp to approach the Oaks from the west. She silently gathered up her skirts and walked quickly and carefully away. She was a strong woman, lithe and vigorous, living in the open air, and used to walking. Once out of hearing, she threw away her hat, and, bending forward, ran through the swamp. For a while she ran easily and swiftly. Then for a moment she grew dizzy, and it seemed as though she was standing still, and the swamp in solemn grandeur marching past, in solemn, mocking grandeur. She loosened her dress at the neck and flew on. She sped at last through the oaks, up the terraces, and slowing down to an unsteady walk, staggered into the house. No one would wonder at her being there. She came up now and then and sorted the linen, and piled the baskets for the girls. She entered a side door and listened. The colonel's voice sounded impatiently in the front hall. "'Mary? Mary?' A pause, then an answer. "'Yes, father.' He started up the front stairway, and Zora hurried up the narrow back stairs, almost overturning a servant. "'I'm after the clothes," she explained. She reached the back landing, just in time, to see Colonel Cresswell's head rising up the front staircase. With a quick bound, she almost fell into the first room at the top of the stairs. Bless Alwyn hurried through his dinner duties, and hastened to the oaks. The questions, the doubts, the uncertainty within him were clamoring for utterance. How much had Mrs. Cresswell ever known of Zora? What kind of woman was Zora now? Mrs. Cresswell had seen her, and had talked to her and watched her. What did she think? Thus he formulated his questions as he went, half timid and fearful in putting them, and yet determined to know. Mrs. Cresswell, waiting for him, was almost panic-stricken. Probably he would beat round the bush seeking further encouragement, but at the slightest indication she must crush him ruthlessly, and at the same time point the path of duty. He ought to marry some good girl, not Zora, but someone. Somehow Zora seemed too unusual and strange for him, too inhuman, as Mary Cresswell judged humanity. She glanced out from her seat on the upper veranda, over the front porch, and saw Alwyn coming. Where should she receive him? On the porch, and have Mr. Maxwell ride up? In the parlor, and have the servants, astounded and talking. If she took him up to her own sitting room, the servants would think he was doing some work, or fetching something for the school. She greeted him briefly, and asked him in. "'Good afternoon, Bless,' using his first name to show him his place, and then inwardly recoiling at its note of familiarity. She preceded him upstairs to the sitting room, where, leaving the door ajar, she seated herself on the opposite side of the room and waited. He fidgeted, then spoke rapidly. "'Mrs. Cresswell, this is a personal affair.' She reddened angrily. "'A love affair.' She paled with something like fear. And I... She started to speak, but could not. I want to know what you think about Zora. About Zora, she gasped weakly. The sudden reaction, the revulsion of her agitated feelings, left her breathless. About Zora. You know I loved her dearly as a boy. How dearly, I have only just begun to realize. I've been wondering if I understood, if I wasn't... Mrs. Cresswell got angrily to her feet. You have come here to speak to me of that? That? she choked, and Bless thought his worst fears realized. Mary, Mary, Colonel Cresswell's voice broke suddenly in upon them. With a start of fear, Mrs. Cresswell rushed out into the hall and closed the door. Mary, has that Alwyn nigger been here this afternoon? Mr. Cresswell was coming upstairs, carrying his riding whip. Why, no, she answered, lying instinctively, before she quite realized what her lie meant. She hesitated. That is, I haven't seen him. I must have nodded over my book, and looking toward the little veranda at the front of the upper hall, where her easy chair stood with her book. Then, with an awful flash of enlightenment, she realized what her lie might mean, and her heart paused. Cresswell strode up. "'I saw him come up. He must have entered. He's nowhere downstairs.' He wavered and scowled. "'Have you been in your sitting-room?' And then, not waiting for a reply, he strode to the door. But the damned scoundrel wouldn't dare. He deliberately placed his hand in his right-hand hip pocket and threw open the door. Mary Cresswell stood frozen. The full horror of the thing burst upon her. Her own silly misapprehension, the infatuation of Alwyn for Zora, her thoughtless, no vindictive betrayal of him, to something worse than death. She listened for the crack of doom. She heard a bird singing far down in the swamp. She heard the soft raising of a window and the closing of a door, and then great God in heaven! Must she live forever in this agony? And then... She heard the door bang and Mr. Cresswell's gruff voice. Well, where is he? He isn't in there. Mary Cresswell felt that something was giving way within. She swayed, and would have crashed to the bottom of the staircase, if just then she had not seen at the opposite end of the hall, near the back stairs, Zora and Alwyn emerge calmly from a room carrying a basket full of clothes. Colonel Cresswell stared at them, and Zora instinctively put up her hand and fastened her dress at the throat. The colonel scowled, for it was all clear to him now. "'Look here,' he angrily opened upon them. "'If you niggers want to meet around, keep out of this house. Hereafter, I'll send the clothes down. By God, if you want to make love, go to the swamp.' He stamped down the stairs, while an ashy paleness stole beneath the dark bronze of Zora's face. They walked silently down the road together. The old familiar road. Alwyn was staring moodily ahead. ''We must get married before Christmas, Zora,'' he presently avowed, not looking at her. He felt the basket pause, and he glanced up. Her dark eyes were full upon him, and he saw something in their depth that brought him to himself and made him realize his blunder. Zora, he stammered, forgive me. Will you marry me? She looked at him calmly with infinite compassion, but her reply was uttered unhesitatingly, distinct, direct. No, bless. End of chapter thirty four. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas. The quest of the silver fleece by W. E. B. Dubot. Chapter 35 The Cotton Mill. The people of Tombsville started in their beds and listened. A new song was rising on the air, a harsh, low, murmuring croon that shook the village ranged around its old square of dilapidated stores. It was not a song of joy, it was not a song of sorrow. It was not a song at all, perhaps, but a confused whizzing and murmuring, as of a thousand ill-tuned, busy voices. Some of the listeners wondered, but most of the town cried joyfully, It's the new cotton mill. John Taylor's head teemed with new schemes. The mill trust of the North was at last a fact. The small mills had not been able to buy cotton when it was low, because Cresswell was cornering it in the name of the Farmer's League, and now that it was high, they could not afford to, and many surrendered to the trust. Next thing, wrote Taylor to Easterly, is to reduce cost of production. Too much goes in wages, gradually transfer mills south. Easterly argued that the labor was too unskilled in the south, and that to send northern spinners down, would spread labor troubles." Taylor replied briefly, "'Never fear. We'll scare them with a vision of niggers in the mills.'" Colonel Cresswell was not so easily won over to the new scheme. In the first place, he was angry because the school, which he had come to regard as, on its last legs, somehow still continued to flourish. The $10,000 mortgage had but three more years, and that would end all but he had hoped for a crash even earlier. Instead of this, Miss Smith was cheerfully expanding the work, hiring new teachers, and especially, she had brought to help her two young Negroes, whom he suspected. Colonel Cresswell had prevented the Tolliver land sale, only to be inveigled himself into Sora's scheme, which now began to worry him. He must evict Sora's tenants as soon as the crops were planted and harvested, There was nothing unjust about such a course, he argued, for Negroes, anyway, were too lazy and shiftless to buy the land. They would not, they could not, work without driving. All this he imparted to John Taylor, to which that gentleman listened carefully. I see he owned, and I know the way out. How? A cotton mill in Tombsville. What's that got to do with it? bring in whites. But I don't want poor white trash. I'd sooner have niggers. Now see here, argued Taylor. You can't have everything you want. Days gone by for aristocracy of old kind. You must have neighbors. Choose, then, white or black. I say, white. But they'll rule us, outvote us, marry our daughters, warmly objected the colonel. Some of them may, most of them won't. A few of them with brains will help us rule the rest with money. We'll plant cotton mills beside the cotton fields, use whites to keep niggers in their place, and the fear of niggers to keep the poorer whites in theirs." The Colonel looked thoughtful. There's something in that, he confessed after a while, but it's a mighty big experiment, and it may go awry. Not with brains and money to guide it. At any rate, we've got to try it. It's the next logical step and we must take it. But in the meantime, I'm not going to give up the old methods. I'm going to set the sheriff behind these lazy niggers," said the colonel, and I'm going to stop that school putting notions into their heads. In three short months, the mill at Tombsville was open, and its wheels whizzing to the boundless pride of the citizens. "'Our enterprise, sir,' they said to the strangers on the strength of the $5,000 locally invested. Once it had vigor to sing, the song of the mill knew no resting. Morning and evening, day and night, it carooned its rhythmic tune. Only during the daylight Sundays did its murmur die to a slybent hiss. All the week its doors were filled with the coming and going of men and women, and children. Many men, more women, and greater and greater throngs of children. It seemed to devour children. Sitting with its myriad eyes gleaming, and its black maw open, drawing in the pale white mites, sucking their blood, and spewing them out paler and even paler. The face of the town began to change, showing a ragged tuberculosis-looking side, with dingy homes in short and homely rows. There came gradually a new consciousness to the town. Hitherto, town and country had been ruled by a few great landlords. But at the very first election, Colton, an unknown outsider, had beaten the regular candidate for sheriff, by such a majority that the big property owners dared not count him out. They had, however, an earnest consultation with John Taylor. "'It's just as I said,' growled Colonel Cresswell. "'If you don't watch out, our whole plantation system will be ruined.' and we will be governed by this white trash from the hills. "'There's only one way,' sighed Caldwell, the merchant. "'We've got to vote, the niggers.' John Taylor laughed. "'Nonsense!' He spurned the suggestion. "'You're old-fashioned. Let the mill-hands have the offices. What good will it do?' "'What good? Why, they'll do as they please with us.' "'Bosh, don't we own the mill? Can't we keep wages where we like?' By threatening to bring in nigger labor? No, you can't permanently, Maxwell disputed. For they sometime will call your bluff. Let them call, said Taylor, and we'll put niggers in the mills. What? ejaculated the landlords in chorus. Only Maxwell was silent. And kill the plantation system? Oh, maybe sometime, of course, but not for years, not until you've made your pile. You don't really expect to keep the darkies down forever, do you?" No, I don't, Maxwell slowly admitted. This system can't last always. Sometimes I think it can't last long. It's wrong through and through. It's built on ignorance, theft, and force, and I wish to God we had the courage enough to overthrow it and take the consequences. I wish it was possible to be a southerner and a Christian and an honest man to treat niggers and dagos and white trash like men, and be big enough to say, to hell with consequences." Colonel Cresswell stared at his neighbor, speechless with bewilderment and outraged traditions. Such unbelievable heresy from a northerner or a negro would have been natural, but from a southerner, whose father had owned five hundred slaves, it was incredible. The other landlords scarcely listened They were dogged and impatient, and they could suggest no remedy. They could only blame the mill for their troubles. John Taylor left the conference blithely. No, he said to the committee from the new Mill Workers Union. Can't raise wages, gentlemen, and can't lessen hours. Mill has just started, and not yet paying expenses. You're getting better wages than you ever got. If you don't want to work, quit. There are plenty of others, white and black, who want your jobs." The mention of black people as competitors for wages was like a red rag to a bull. The laborers got together, and at the next election, they made a clean sweep. Judge, sheriff, two members of the legislature, and the registrars of votes. Undoubtedly the following year, they would capture Harry Cresswell's seat in Congress. The result was curious. From two sides, from landlord and white laborer, came renewed oppression of black men. The laborers found that their political power gave them little economic advantage, as long as the threatening cloud of Negro competition loomed ahead. There was some talk of a strike, but Colton, the new sheriff, discouraged it. I tell you boys, where the trouble lies, it's the niggers. They live on nothing and take any kind of treatment and they keep wages down. If you strike, they'll get your jobs, sure. You'll we'll just have to grin and bear it a while, but get back at the darkies whenever you can. I'll stick them into the chain gang, every chance I get. On the other hand, inspired by fright, the grip of the landlords on the black serfs closed with steadily increasing firmness. They saw one class rising from beneath them the power, and they tightened the chains on the other. Matters simmered on this way, and the only party wholly satisfied with conditions was John Taylor, and the few young Southerners who saw through his eyes. He was making money. The landlords, on the contrary, were losing power and prestige, and their farm labor, despite strenuous efforts, was drifting to town, attracted by new and incidental work and higher wages. The mill-hands were more and more overworked and underpaid, and hated the Negroes for it, in accordance with their leaders' directions. At the same time, the oppressed blacks and scowling mill-hands could not help recurring again and again, to the same inarticulate thought which no one was brave enough to voice. Once however, it came out flatly. It was when Zora, crowding into the village courthouse, to see if she could not help Aunt Rachel's accused boy, found herself beside a gaunt, overworked white woman. The woman was struggling with a crippled child, and Zora, turning, lifted him carefully for the weak mother, who thanked her half timidly. That mill's about killed him, she said. At this juncture, the manacled boy was led into court, and the woman suddenly turned to Zora. Darned if I don't think these white slaves and black slaves It ought to get together, she declared. I think so, too," Zora agreed. Colonel Cresswell himself caught the conversation, and it struck him with a certain dismay. Suppose such conjunction should come to pass. He edged over to John Taylor and spoke to him, but Taylor, who had just successfully stopped the suit for damages to the injured boy, merely shrugged his shoulders. "'What's this nigger charged with?' demanded the judge, when the first black boy was brought up before him. "'Breaking his labor contract.' "'Any witnesses?' "'I have the contract here,' announced the sheriff. "'He refuses to work.' "'A year, or one hundred dollars.' Colonel Cresswell paid his fine and took him in charge. "'What's the charge here?' said the judge, pointing to Aunt Rachel's boy. "'Attempt to kill a white man.' Any witnesses? None except the victim. And I, said Zora, coming forward. Both the sheriff and Colonel Cresswell stared at her. Of course, she was simply a black girl, but she was an educated woman who knew things about the Cresswell plantations that it was unnecessary to err in court. The newly elected judge had not yet taken his seat, and Cresswell's word was still law in the court. He whispered to the judge. ''Case postponed,'' said the court. The sheriff scowled. ''Wait till Jim gets on the bench,'' he growled. The white bystanders, however, did not seem enthusiastic, and one man, he was a northern spinner, spoke out plainly. ''It's none of my business, of course. I've been fired, and I'm damned glad of it. But see here, if you mutts think you're going to beat these big blokes at their own game of cheating niggers, you're daffy. You take this from me. Get together with the niggers, and hold up this whole capitalist gang. If you don't get the niggers first, they'll use them as a club to throw you down. You hear me?" And he departed for the train. Colton was suspicious. The sentiment of joining with the Negroes did not seem to arouse the bitter resentment he expected. There even came whispers to his ear that he had sold out to the landlords and there was enough truth in the report to scare him. Thus to both parties came the uncomfortable specter of the black men, and both sides went to work to lay the ghost. Particularly was Colonel Cresswell stirred to action. He realized that in Bless and Sora, he was dealing with a younger class of educated black folk, who were learning to fight with new weapons. They were, he was sure, as dissolute and weak as their parents. But they were shrewder and more aspiring. They must be crushed and crushed quickly. To this end, he had recourse to two sources of help, Johnson and the whites in town. Johnson was what Colonel Cresswell repeatedly called a faithful nigger. He was one of those constitutionally timid creatures, in whom the civility of his father's had sunk in so deep that it had become second nature. To him, a white man was an archangel, while the Cresswells, his father's masters, stood for God. He served them with dog-like faith, asking no reward, and for what he gave in reverence to them, he took back in contempt for his fellow niggers. He applied the epithet with more contempt than the colonel himself could express. To the Negroes, he was a white folks nigger, to be despised and feared. To him, Colonel Cresswell gave a few pregnant directions. Then he rode to town and told Taylor again of his fears of a labor movement, which would include whites and blacks. Taylor could not see any great danger. Of course, he conceded, they'll eventually get together. Their interests are identical. I'll admit it's our game to delay this as long as possible. It must be delayed forever, sir." "'Can't be,' was the terse response. But even if they do ally themselves, our way is easy. Separate the leaders, the talented, the pushers of both races from their masses. And through them, rule the rest by money." But Colonel Cresswell shook his head. "'It's precisely these leaders of the Negroes that we must crush,' he insisted. Taylor looked puzzled. I thought it was the lazy, shiftless, and criminal Negroes you feared." -"Hang it? No. We can deal with them. We've got whips, chain-gangs, and mobs, if need be. No, it's the Negro who wants to climb up that we've got to beat to his knees." Taylor could not follow this reasoning. He believed in an aristocracy of talent alone, and secretly despised Colonel Cresswell's pretensions of birth. If a man had ability and push... Taylor was willing and anxious to open the way for him, even though he were black. The caste way of thinking in the South, both as applied to poor whites and to Negroes, he simply could not understand. The weak and the ignorant of all races he despised, and had no patience with them. But others? A man's a man, isn't he? he persisted. But Colonel Cresswell replied, no, never if he's black, and not always when he's white and he stalked away. Zora sensed fully the situation. She did not anticipate any immediate understanding with the laboring whites, but she knew that eventually it would be inevitable. Meantime, the Negro must strengthen himself and bring to the Alliance as much independent strength as possible. For the development of her plans, she needed Bless Alwyn's constant cooperation. He was business manager of the school, and was doing well, but she wanted to point out to him the larger field. So long as she was uncertain of his attitude toward her, it was difficult to act, but now, since the flash of the imminent tragedy at Cresswell Oaks had cleared the air, with all its hurt a frank understanding had been made possible. The very next day Zora chose to show Bless over her new home and grounds, and to speak frankly to him. They looked at the land, examined the proposed farm sites, and viewed the living room and dormitory in the house. "'You haven't seen my den,' said Zora. "'No. Miss Smith is in there now. She often hides there. Come.' He went into the large central house and into the living room, then out on the porch, beyond which lay the kitchen. But to the left and at the end of the porch was a small building. It was sealed in dark yellow pine, with figured denim on the walls. A straight desk of rough-hewn wood stood in the corner by the white-curtained window, and a couch and two large easy-chairs faced a tall, narrow fireplace of uneven stone. A thick, green, rag carpet covered the floor. A few pictures were on the walls. A Madonna, a scene of mad, careening horses, and some sad baby faces. The room was a unity. Things fitted together as if they belonged together. It was restful and beautiful, from the cheerful pine blaze before which Smith Smith was sitting, to the square-paned window that let in the crimson rays of gathering night. All around the room, stopping only at the fireplace, ran low shelves of the same yellow pine, filled with books and magazines. He scanned curiously. Plato's Republic, Gorky's Comrades, Encyclopedia of Agriculture, Balzac's Novels, Spencer's First Principles, Tennyson's Poems. This is my university, Zora explained, smiling at his interested survey. They went out again, and wandered down near the old lagoon. Now, bless, she began. Since we understand each other, Can we not work together as good friends?" She spoke simply and frankly, without apparent effort, and talked on at length of her work and vision. Somehow he could not understand. His mental attitude towards Zora had always been one of guidance, guardianship, and instruction. He had been judging and weighing her. From on high, looking down upon her with thoughts of uplift and development, always He had been holding her dark little hands to lead her out of the swamp of life, and always, when in senseless anger he had half forgotten and deserted her, this vision of elder brotherhood had still remained. Now this attitude was being revolutionized. She was proposing to him a plan of wide scope, a bold regeneration of the land. It was a plan carefully studied out, long thought of and read about. He was asked to be co-worker, nay, in a sense to be a follower, for he was ignorant of much. He hesitated. Then, all at once, a sense of his utter unworthiness overwhelmed him. Who was he to stand and judge this unselfish woman? Who was he to falter when she called? A sense of his smallness, and narrowness of his priggish blindness, rose like a mockery in his soul. One thing alone held him back. He was not unwilling to be simply human, a learner and a follower. But would he, as such, ever command the love and respect of this new and inexplicable woman? Would not comradeship, on the basis of the new friendship which she insisted on, be the death of love and thoughts of love? Thus he hesitated, knowing that his duty lay clear. In her direst need he had deserted her, he had left her to go to destruction and expected that she would. By a superhuman miracle, she had risen and seated herself above him. She was working. Here was work to be done. He was asked to help. He would help. If it killed his old and newborn dream of love, well and good, it was his punishment. Yet the sacrifice, the readjustment, was hard. He grew to it gradually, inwardly revolting. Feeling, always, a great longing to take this woman and make her nestle in his arms as she used to, catching himself again and again on the point of speaking to her, and urging, yet ever again, holding himself back and bowing in silent respect to the dignity of her life. Only now and then, when their eyes met suddenly and unthinkingly, a great kindling flash of flame seemed struggling behind showers of tears until in a moment she smiled or spoke, and then the dropping veil left only the frank open glance, unwavering, soft, kind, but nothing more. Then Alwyn would go wearily away, vexed or disappointed, or merely sad, and both would turn to their work again. End of Chapter 35 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas